we're uniquely positioned in you know in the thought that we this is dr brent reefstick viewed as such we are viewed as experts in our field so we walk into the room with a certain amount of confidence being placed in our fund of knowledge but google's here now <laughs> and so it can be really frustrating because then um, if what we're saying doesn't line up with what they read before they walked into the room, sometimes that can be really frustrating. But I do feel like, I don't know, probably 80 to 90% of my work is spent in educating, whether it be educating parents and patients or educating nurses at the bedside. So, you know, I feel like it's a constant thing and it's part of I, I, in my opinion, to be a good doctor, you have to be able to teach. Welcome to episode two of Teaching Science, a podcast dedicated to exploring scientific literacy and ways to improve it in the world we live in. My name is Anant. I'm a third year medical student and I'm your host. In today's episode, we explore the role of physicians in educating patients and what one particular physician's experience is in combating misinformation in his community about COVID, but also beyond. Our guest today is Dr. Brent Reefsteck, an inpatient pediatric physician and leader at Carl Foundation Hospital in the Urbana-Champaign community in central Illinois. Dr. Reefsteck has dedicated much of his time educating the local community about medical issues, and I'm so excited to chat with him. So let's dive in. Hey, Dr. Reefsteck, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing great. Nice to see you. See you. Thank you so much for, you know, joining me on this podcast. Uh, you know, I know you're busy. So really, my first question for you is, you know, you're inpatient doctor, pediatrician at Carl Hospital. What was your reason to go into pediatrics as opposed to any other kind of medicine? Um, so I have no, I'm weird. So I have known since I was in fifth grade that I was going to be a pediatrician. And that's not typical for most people. I uh, grew up in a big family and I feel like children are very much in the moment so if they're on the bus they're going to be a bus driver when they grow up and if they're at school they're going to be a teacher when they grow up but i had a great fifth grade teacher who took us all kind of down these paths where he outlined okay he today we're going to go over this career and what you have to do to become a chef and sure. today we're going to go over how you what you have to go through to be a teacher and then after all that, he sat down with us individually and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he asked me and I said, I want to be a teacher. And he said, Brent, you can be anything you want. You work hard, you get good grades. If you could be anything in the world, any job, after all the jobs we talked about, what would you want to be? And I said, a pediatrician. Here we are. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's... <clears throat> It's not typical, but um, it really highlights the power that educators have, in my opinion, and especially in those formative years when children are starting to develop their own identity and develop their own 
personality and their own drive. Uh, Mr. Grands was that for me. And I had been in the hospital uh, a couple times up to that point for various things. And all of the experiences were great. And so then that led to a path where I was just around kids all the time. I was a swimming, uh, I taught swimming lessons and I uh, was in charge of our vacation Bible school and Sunday school at church. And, you know, so it just naturally flowed from there. So you're currently an inpatient pediatrician. I guess the follow-up question to that is, you know, what was the reason to work with kids inside the hospital as opposed to more of like an outpatient? setting, you know, that was probably a decision you made later in your career. That's kind of cool because um, in pediatrics, you can do a lot of different things. Um, And I like to do a lot of different things. So (laughs) sometimes it's a double-edged sword. But anyway, actually, when I got to residency, my best friend and I, uh, we both decided in our our brains that we were going to be clinic pediatricians. That's what we wanted to do. Now she's a world-renowned researcher in necrotizing enterocolitis and works in St. Louis as a neonatologist. So she didn't follow her path either. (laughs) But we, um, you know, when I left residency, I did work in primary care for three years down in Mattoon, Illinois. And I liked it. I like, I like the, you know, watching kids grow up and knowing the dynamics of the family before they walk through the door because you've met them before. All of that's very appealing to me. I had issues with more logistical things that were going on, and I ended up kind of not enjoying it because of non-clinical things. I liked the work and I liked the people I was working around is um, the milk was kind of soured for me. And while I was doing that, I was working a weekend or two a month up at the main hospital. Um, helping with the hospitalists. And so I would uh, just moonlight as an inpatient uh, pediatrician. When a position came open, uh, I jumped on it and ended up just moving up to be a full-time inpatient pediatrician. And I do a lot of things there. Um, You know, in in addition to inpatient peds, we cover the newborn nursery. We do sedations for peds. Um, I'm in charge of the child abuse program uh, for child abuse evaluation and uh, neglect. So I wear a lot of hats, but I love every part of my job. Um, even the parts now where I'm in leadership and I have a lot of other responsibilities, um, I still love every part of my job. So on that note, since you've kind of seen both inpatient and outpatient, and uh, you're interested in educating not just you know your patients, but also kind of the community at large, how would you compare your experience educating patients as an inpatient doctor versus outpatient doctor? Do you feel like in being inpatient gives you certain advantages that outpatient doesn't or vice versa even? I think there are advantages to both. Um, the In the inpatient world, I have way more time um, to sit down with patients and families on rounds because I have fewer patients m- most of the time. And um, they're a captive audience, so they're there all day. I can go in and talk to them whenever I need to. Whereas outpatient, you got those that family for you know, a small chunk of time and there's somebody coming in the door right behind them. So you're limited into the amount of time you can spend and still stay on schedule. And that can, that can be stressful and it can make you feel rushed and it can cause you to lose your audience because they can tell. Patients and families can tell when you're trying to rush them. 
um, or you're inching toward the door. So, you know, I like teaching in the inpatient setting because I can sit down and have a conversation. I can listen to their stories and not feel like I'm missing my next patient or making myself late. Um, however, on the flip side, on the inpatient world, I might be getting this family for just this moment instead of seeing them develop over time. Now, some of them have chronic conditions and I'm, I know I'm gonna see them on a fairly regular basis, but many of them, I'm teaching them and they just met me today. So you have to develop a style where you can connect with them or find ways to connect so that they can trust what you're saying. On the outpatient side, you don't have to worry about that because they already know you. They've chosen you. They have a choice of many different doctors and they chose to come to you. So they already have confidence in you. So sometimes that offsets that lack of time you might be able to spend in the clinic with them. But um, I think there are definitely advantages to both sides, um, but I definitely prefer being able to sit and spend time with those families and come back later in the day to do more education if I need to. When you're talking to patients and they do come with their preconceived ideas from Google or wherever else they're learning information and it conflicts with advice that you're trying to give them, how do you as a physician reconcile that difference? What do you say to them to get their buy-in? It's hard. <laughs> it's not always easy because, I mean, in general, people are going to seek out information from sources that line up with their worldview. So sometimes you're not just trying to re-educate around bad information. Sometimes you are butting your head up against an entire worldview. And when that's happening, you might as well back off because it's not, it's not going to go the way you hope. So usually what I do is I want to make sure that that Google search that they did or that that pre-reading, um, I want to make sure it's not hidden. I'll ask them, what do you already know? What do you, what do you understand about what's going on? Um, what have you been told? What have you read? And many times they'll act embarrassed. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, of course I put it into Google. I'm like, that's cool. What'd you find? I'm, I want to draw it out of them because that gives me a moment to educate with actual factual information uh, that is evidence-based, but it also gives me a moment where I can teach them, hey, that source you read, it might've sounded cool and it might've sounded totally believable and I get where you're coming from, but here's why it's not a good source and here's some better places to look. So I'm not just in that moment giving them the correct information, I'm trying to show them how to get to the correct information next time. And um, so I like it when that happens. It's it's those moments where, like I said, you're butting your head up against that that worldview that is almost like a stumbling block to getting getting to the real information. That those okay. are the, the frustrating times. That definitely makes sense. Have you noticed that because of the coronavirus, that problem is becoming more prevalent? And do you feel like you've had to employ unique or special strategies to combating that in the clinic or in the, sorry, in the hospital or, you know, wherever you're talking everywhere. to people. Yeah. Everywhere. It's, um, I think this pandemic has really done a great job of showing you who people are, uh, bringing out their true nature. Um, so in the beginning, when we knew very little, um, and, information was starting to trickle through, 
you know, the unknown is, you know, notorious for scaring the hell out of people, humans in general. So, <clears throat> of course, there was some good information being shared, but some misinformation being shared at the same time. And um, I know this is a podcast and you can't see me, but I'm Whitey McWhite White. I'm very Caucasian <laughs> and I'm from here. So I grew up here in the central Illinois region. Um, I have a huge family and I my family ranges all the way from raging liberal to super conservative. And that's fine. It's great. Everybody can have their own lane. The problem is um, in the beginning when things were being shared across social media, I found myself individually arguing with people that I care about. It's that identifying with a certain worldview and then meandering through your normal social media day and finding the things that line up with your worldview that you want to then share with the world. After a while of just individual arguments, what I chose to do instead was just start posting factual information and reassurance and a sense of calm. And I did that mostly because I was sick of arguing with people. <laughs> I mean, I still, I still have to sometimes, but the, the idea here is a combination of giving reassurance, but also trying to teach people the right way to get to the right information. The challenge there is some people don't, don't want to get to the right information because they, it doesn't line up with how they think and how they believe. And that's real frustrating because it's not how science works. Well, and that's another thing is teaching people how science works has been really frustrating, but rewarding at the same time. Because um, when I started the Facebook posts um, back at the beginning, my first post that I have written down at least that I, when I started was like March 21st. And um, since then, I've done, let's see, like 45 plus 27, we're like almost 70 different posts, including a couple of Facebook lives. And um, it's, I put a lot of love and a lot of time into every single one of them with the purpose of trying to get the right information out. Now I have like almost 12,000 followers on Facebook that regularly tune in my last Facebook live, I think I had 7,000 views. And so you can tell that there's a hunger there for the right information. Um, and I try to do it in a way that doesn't alienate one side or the other, because if there's one thing we've learned from this pandemic, it's that um, people can make anything political, even if it's not political at all. <laughs> and sometimes to, for people to receive a message that they don't necessarily agree with, um, it has to be done in a non-threatening way. And that's, that's really challenging, but it's, it's rewarding at the same time because clearly people are in need of the correct information. I also try to make sure to walk through things in a way that um, is on the level of the person I'm talking to. So one example would be, we had a cystic fibrosis patient that um, 
was it was a struggle because the caregivers that she had in you know a number of caregivers in a row weren't doing a great job and she ended up with um a caregiver who couldn't read and cystic fibrosis is a pretty complicated regimen usually you're doing multiple uh treatments a day um chest physiotherapy where they have a vest that pounds on their chest um to break up their mucus so it's a complicated regimen for most patients and if you can't read then i can't make you a list so the nurses and i and the social worker developed a kind of a picture book for him to help help him care for this patient where we would have you know the, a clock face and then on the other side pictures of the things that he needed to do for that at that time you know meeting a patient and family at their level is really really important and not assuming that they get it because a lot of times they'll say they're getting it but they're not Okay, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, do you feel like, uh, have you noticed that people are less um, understanding, especially in this era of COVID, about the facts and the truths? And so it's harder to get to their level, even though they might be, you know, quote unquote, educated, as we might say, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of people come in um, with, an open mind when it comes to just hospital problems. But if, if it's something that has any sort of charge to it, like vaccines, um, we offer the flu vaccine to every single patient that lands in the hospital. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people that come in and they already have a preconceived notion about even influenza vaccines. And it's kind of hard to break through that. And I think a lot of people come in with an, with an open mind, but also a measure of skepticism. And that's from our, that's from our culture. It's from our world that we are in today. Um, I, I think that when, from, from doing a lot of reading about this to try and figure out how to break through People who are who hang on to conspiracy theories, it's not because they're trying to be difficult most of the time. It's it's very common for folks to do that when it's a big thing that's hard to understand. Assigning a conspiracy theory to it then allows you to latch on to, oh, I figured this out, even though you guys can't. And it helps them to feel um, like they, they get it they're part of a special club kind of and they're doing it because it's something big and scary and hard to understand um and instead of walking through the fact with walking through it with facts and with fact checking um they'd rather read this blog or this um watch this youtube video where they're telling us the real story and um that's a hard thing because if they've latched onto it for those more psychological reasons, then you're going to have to unbraid all of that to get to some sort of place where they can receive the truth. And that's one of the reasons 
why in my posts, I spend a lot of time talking about gaslighting and talking about fact checking and reputable sources, because then people have the tools they need to, um, to unravel all of that on their own or unravel it for their friends. Um, because most people aren't going to receive information that they don't already agree with unless they receive it from a trusted source. So on that note, when a, a patient is looking for reliable uh, information about, let's say, the coronavirus, what would you say is what, what would you say is something that qualifies a source to be reliable, other than just the general, you know, ethos uh, behind, like the CDC, for example, or you know, other than those sources. What, what are some of the necessary requirements for a, a source to be reliable? Well, I, what I usually tell people is pretty much any source can be reliable. But when you read through an article or watch a video and there are no links to any, any sort of, um, you know, things to like places that you can go to back up what they're saying, where they're saying, here's where I'm citing the, where I got this stuff from. If the article or the video don't, doesn't have anything like that, then it's probably not reputable. And, um, you know, anybody that's throwing stuff out on the internet or on their blogs or on YouTube or whatever, um, it really is their responsibility to say, yeah, I didn't come up with this on my own. Here are my sources. So I try to do that as much as possible. Um, just so I'm practicing what I preach, but I also try to make sure that if I have the opportunity for us as a group to pick this stuff apart and say, what's wrong with this article, then we do that. So I, in the beginning, I started getting, people would send me, oh, what's, what about this? And what about this? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to watch another video. <laughs> this is going to drive me crazy. <laughs> so at one point I just, posted it on my on my page and said, here you go, guys. This got sent to me by three different people. Pick it apart. Use your tools that I that I've taught you. It's your homework. I want you to tell me what's, you know, what's good and what's bad. And it was brilliant. Like all of these people that I that comment on my posts on a regular basis came back with, oh, it's this. And I checked fact check and it didn't it didn't pan out. And you know, it basically all of the people, the, these followers, they were able to pull that apart. And I thought it was a great exercise. It really gave me hope that, you know, when you teach people the right way to get to the right information, to check to see if it's the right information and to make sure they're not posting the wrong information. When you teach them how to do that, they listen. And it's uh, really cool to watch in real time. The coronavirus pandemic is gripping this nation. It's likely we're going to see a blip in the sense of a surge upon a surge. With hundreds of thousands of deaths, a death toll that is continuing to climb. Three months. I actually believe they're going to be the most difficult 
time in the public health history of this nation. Hospitalization. Millions of people infected. The virus continues to lay waste to our already strained healthcare system. Across the country, now topping 100,000, an all time high, with beds filling up. ICU beds are packed, and use of ventilators and PPE is once again strained. The, the hypocrisy, riots are not health risks. The battle over bars and restaurants. Despite the massive damage, millions of Americans continue to violate stay-at-home orders and engage in large social gatherings without wearing masks. Flying from San Francisco to Hawaii, even though they had tested positive for COVID at the airport, potentially exposing other passengers. The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. This clip is from a March 8, 2020 interview. This is before we you know, experienced the brunt of COVID around the country. Um, but in this clip, you know, just to play a little devil's advocate here, Dr. Fauci says in the middle of an outbreak. So, it, you know, the timing of it is important uh, because we didn't know then how much different this coronavirus is going to be than the other coronaviruses that we routinely have dealt with. But we also didn't know that it was going to not be contact droplet transmission. We didn't know it was going to be airborne. And that's a big difference. You know, we're also talking about a time where we were worried in the hospital about PPE. So if there had been a run on surgical masks, like there had been, like there was a run on toilet paper, then we would have been hurting a lot more than we even were in the beginning. So I think there's a number of things. And um, one thing that I preach over and over and over again, multiple times in my posts, um, is today's science is just for today. And that's a really hard pill to swallow for most people because they walk in with the assumption that, you know, once we figure something out, we figured it out. And if they're not in a scientific field, they don't realize that this stuff is constantly changing. You know, some of the stuff that I did back in the beginning of my career, which was just 2008, <laughs> not that long ago, I don't do anymore. And why? It's not because I was wrong back then. It's because that's the information I had back then. Absolutely. And now I know better because new science is here. So, you know, the science of coronavirus on March 8th is way different than the science of coronavirus on December 1st. This is CNBC's uh, Rick Santelli, who's an economic commentator on the platform. Think about how the world would be if you 
tried to quarantine everybody because of the generic type flu. Now, I'm not saying this is the generic type flu, but maybe we'd be just better off if we gave it to everybody and then in a month it would be over because the mortality rate of this probably isn't going to be any different if we did it that way than the long-term picture. So since this clip, he's obviously apologized. Uh, <laughs> CNBC has come out with an apology. But to the people that believe or agree with this logic, why are they wrong? Well, you know, we know that the mortality rate is much higher than influenza, and we, we know that people die from it. We also know, you know, and this is, we are just on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to long-term consequences. Um, you know, a good study in Lancet was published not too long ago that one in five um, people who uh, recover from coronavirus end up with depression and mental illness. So yeah, we could just infect everybody and be done with it in a month, like he said, but number one, we don't have true proof that you are have long-term immunity after infection. And number two, you might not kill, you know, 10% of the people that end up infected, but how many of them are you signing up for um, long-term mental illness? Um, we know that there are cardiac consequences. Um, I mean, we had to ramp up cardiac MRI capabilities at the hospital so that we can clear student athletes for uh, return to participation. So, you know, there are a lot of things about this virus that we still don't understand, and it is very cavalier and reckless to say we should just infect everybody and be done with it, because the consequences could be much more dire than people understand. The Moderna press release from the vaccine trial that is being applied for to the FDA for emergency use, uh, but I guess I wanted to get your reaction to the state of the vaccine and what challenges you think we are going to face as a medical community in once we have the vaccine how, how difficult is it going to be to get everyone possible vaccinated this is super exciting because this is the first vaccine of its kind i would definitely remind everybody that it may feel like this was a rushed process which then feels unsafe but when you look at the process that any new drug, especially vaccines, have to go through, think of it as, you know, each one of these new drugs, whether they're related to coronavirus or not, is usually in the normal process waiting in line for a long time to get approval and to go before the correct committees and to submit all the research. The parts that were rushed had nothing to do with safety. The parts that were rushed basically think of it as they just got pushed to the front of the line instead of waiting in line. The process has been sped up basically by um, putting these products to the front of the line to make sure that they can get done quicker, but without sacrificing the safety and efficacy checks. And, you know, they're not going to put something to market. And because think about this, this is scientists and, and clinicians, people who are, it's a large group of people. It's not just one person in their, you know, garage lab. They're not going to put something out there to be given to patients if they're not sure it's safe. That's the thing to remember. But it's, it's very exciting. And in the healthcare world, 
you know, we're going to be, you know, toward the front of the line to get the vaccine when it comes out and it will be soon for healthcare workers. Um, but since it's an emergency use authorization, it will not, we, we cannot require it. So it's, it cannot be um, mandatory for healthcare workers. Um, but it, it will be strongly encouraged. So we'll hopefully be able to get as many people vaccinated as we can. I think this is a good segue for the next one, which is talking about healthcare workers. So this is a graph by healthdata.org. It's a data aggregation group, which is looking at overall COVID numbers. And this graph is estimating hospital resource counts based on uh, beds, ICU beds, invasive ventilators, etc. There's a few different factors they look at. But I wanted to show you where we are right now, which is right here. And it says that our ICU beds that are needed are around the country are 26,315. And by about January 12th, which isn't that far away, we would need around 40,000 ICU beds. Do you feel like hospitals are prepared for that level of increase? And uh, what, what are some new things that hospitals are doing to you know, remedy or rectify that shortage? I do think that some hospitals are ready. And I think that the smaller a hospital is, the more scarce their resources are. So just as an example, um, there was a point at which I was talking about, you know, there are 72 inpatients at Carl with uh, coronavirus. And then people were responding and saying, but the Champaign-Urbana Public Health District says there's only seven from the county that are in the hospital. What? Why are you lying? <laughs> and I'm like, well, we serve a really large area. So seven Champaign County residents might be in the hospital, but there's 60 some odd others in our hospital from other counties. Now there are hospitals in a lot of those counties. The problem is um, those hospitals are not prepared for critically ill patients with coronavirus. And um, that's where we get into trouble. So it has become important for hospitals to then come up with plans. And we have plans upon plans upon plans here, uh, which is awesome, but we just hope to not have to use them. So we moved from, you know, single occupancy rooms to double occupancy rooms, which essentially doubles our ICU capacity and it doubles our access. But then we could turn whole hospital floors into COVID floors if we need to. And then once we fill up there, we have plans um, to partner with um, university resources for both emergency ventilators and for space. So one very, very reassuring thing for me is I work in a place where um, we have had a pandemic plan at Carl for years and years and years. All it took was for us to see this on the horizon and the upper levels of leadership then took our pandemic plan and just inserted the word coronavirus into the bits and pieces and plan. Not everybody's like that. So um, not every place has those plans, but we as the healthcare safety net for the region um, had to take that initiative so that we could, you know, make sure that we were available to care for all of our, all of our, you know, all the people in our area. 
I wanted to show you this next clip, which is uh, a TED. It's part of a TED talk that Bill Gates gave uh, in April 3rd of 2015. And uh, this is what he has to say about the next big crisis of our country. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. His uh, argument back then, and this is just five years ago, was that in the next few decades, we're going to have a very infectious virus. And at the same time, President Obama was putting together this pandemic task force at the White House, which was removed by the Trump administration. What, where, where do you think the failure happened in you know, anticipating this type of virus? Do you think it was uh, largely the government's fault? Do you think state governments should have been better prepared? Or do you think hospitals at the local level could have done more? Or do you think it's a combination of all three levels of intervention? That is a great question. I think that um, there's probably not one correct answer. I think there's probably a lot of different opinions. Um, I do feel like there has to be a trusted, wide, uh, widely accepted source of guidance from the highest levels in a situation like this. I mean, there are examples of countries who did a superb job with testing, like Iceland, and contact tracing um, with mitigation efforts uh, like New Zealand and Australia, um, Denmark. So we know that national guidance can provide a template for success. Um, I do feel like states were kind of left to their own devices, which can be really great if they're all, you know, approaching it with a similar um, similar plan. The problem is if you can cross a state border and things are completely different just because you're in a different state, then that's not really a plan. That's not really a, that's not reality because the virus can cross just fine. <laughs> so, you know, if you're just going across a border to get to a place that has fewer rules, then you're potentially going across to catch it and bring it back. And that's really frustrating. Um, you know, I think individual hospitals, individual states were kind of left on their own and there was no real plan. And that's really frustrating because in times of crisis, you know, feeling like there's, you know, some overreaching guidance um, they don't have to control everything, but at least listening to science and following recommendations and showing everybody what to do by example, I think those are all things that we were missing out on. And it's really, really unfortunate. The last uh, article I wanted to get your reaction from was just about the high level guidance. So in New York, uh, the state of New York, Governor Cuomo issued a restriction on people to access religious uh, places of worship for COVID uh, because of COVID gathering. And the federal Supreme Court decided to vote five to four against uh, the, gov the governor's decision to restrict religious services. Do you feel like 
this is okay? Do you feel like this is, you know, justifiable in a time where gatherings of just any gathering over 10 people is very probable to have someone with COVID asymptomatically or even symptomatically? So, um, I, I do think this was a terrible decision. And I do think it actually is accounted for in the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment, um, and plenty of case law leading up to this, where um, the Constitution leaves things like this to the states. And um, the you know, precedents are very clear about states having the right and the responsibility really to enact measures to ensure public health. And the problem here is it's being made about politics and religion and not about the health and well-being of the population at large. And that's really unfortunate and very irresponsible, in my opinion. I do wish it were easier to get around things like that and to um, get people to do the right thing. I, you know, that's not the world we live in. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Teaching Science Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Nike Labs, a creative venture in pursuit of universal scientific literacy. I'm interviewing science educators around the country to have a conversation about how to best teach science literacy in our education system. To learn more, visit www.nikelabs.com backslash science literacy. Don't forget to follow the podcast on social media. And if you like this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and family. This is Anant signing off.